0: All right, well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. If you're new with us, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and we're making our way through a study of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews, Hebrews. This is no small feat. Hebrews is a very rich, deep book, and today is going to be no different, and so um, Hold on, I'm going to go through a lot of content in Hebrews 2, verses 10 through the end of it, which is verse 18. So if you would stand with me to honor God's word and we'll read it together. If you don't have your copy of God's word, it'll be on the screen behind me. So let me read Hebrews two ten for us. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So in these texts in Hebrews and in most texts throughout the scriptures, what comes to mind when you read your Bible or when we find ourselves in a setting like this, listening to the sermon, are probably questions. And so sometimes I like to lay those questions before you to get at the heart of what the author of Hebrews is trying to answer or convey, one to his primary audience and then also to us through uh, the Word of God. And, and the question here in Hebrews 10 through, uh, 2, 10 through 18 is this. Why? You can put that question up for me. Why did Jesus become a man and die? Why? Now, I talked two weeks ago about how the Bible doesn't oftentimes answer our why questions. And I know we have a lot of why questions, particularly the why questions about, hey, why am I facing this? Why am I struggling? Why am I suffering with this? There are other places in Scripture where the why questions are provoked and the Scriptures give an answer. And so this morning we have one of those places where this question is going to be answered in Hebrews two ten through 18. And I've got to be honest with you, and I know some of you, you maybe wouldn't think this is true, but, but as pastors and elders, there are some things um, that, 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 that kind of uh, we, we wrestle with uniquely, and each of us would have these things. And I don't, I don't mean with sin. You know we wrestle with sin if you've met us or talked with us, right? I'm talking about theological things things that we we would hold as true and know as true and are confident true, but still have some questions. Have you ever been there? You're like, I know that I'm saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Or we'll come to a passage or a question even like this and we go, but I still have questions about this. And if I'm honest with you, um, for years I had to wrestle with this question. This question of why in the world would the God of the universe in his plan of redemption and salvation, why would it be that he would have to send his son to die the death he died? Right? And, and listen, I, I understand theologically and biblically the outcome, right? To save us from our sins, right? I, I get that. I, get, I understand what redemption is, what reconciliation is. But why that route? Why not some other route? He's the God of the universe. Couldn't he have chosen another way? Couldn't you have just said it? Saved. And then I read Hebrews 2, verse 10. And there are three words. And this is where I really wrestle in Hebrews because the reality is I thought about preaching a sermon just on these three words, but I know we'd be here for like four and a half years. So <laughs> go with me. The three words here after the first word in verse 10. Why? Why is that the way? Four, then the next three words. It was fitting. If you have a Bible, you might underline that. Why is this the way of salvation? Why was Jesus putting on flesh, literally incarnate, right? Christmas, right? Here in October, I know, putting on flesh, dwelling among us, living the life we could not live, dying the death we deserved, resurrected. Why was that the way? And here's the answer from the writer of Hebrews because it was fitting. Another word for fitting is correct. It was right. So in God's sovereign plan, in his infinite wisdom, here is the answer to why Jesus had to come and die. Because it fit God. You see, what I was trying to do was fit God into my intellect. See, in questioning this, in thinking through this, going, you know, that doesn't fit my plan of how I'd go through this. It doesn't seem real expedient. And in fact, it seems messy. And what some authors incorrectly have seen said, it seems like divine child abuse. In fact, they've used that language. Maybe I go, it's not my preference that this would be how God deals with our sin is by putting it all on his sin. Surely there's another way. But what do we read here in Hebrews 2 verse 10? No, 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 no. The way of salvation through Christ, his life and his death was perfect in God's plan. And in fact, it was fitting and right from the beginning of time. This is exactly how God played out and planned salvation and redemption. You say, well, fitting. How was it fitting? How was it the perfect way. One, because God goes, listen, my ways are higher than your ways. That's what the scriptures say, right? My thoughts are not your thoughts. And so Kyle, when you try to put your thoughts in reason with me, you have to understand you're not God and I am. So the ways in which I execute things, the way in which I carry out things like redemption are going to be so much higher than the way you're able to understand them or even prefer that you have to trust me. But he doesn't just leave it there at trust. He also breaks down, going, "No, this is fitting because it's consistent." Now, write this down. It's consistent with the character and nature of God. So, Jesus coming, putting on flesh, and dying is consistent with who God is, right? And one of the things you need to understand in reading your Bible is that you want to you want to kind of skirt or stay away from things that that are inconsistent with the character and nature of God revealed in the Bible. See, when I was putting plans of salvation, or surely you could do this or just speak, it was inconsistent with God's nature as revealed in the scriptures. And so as I began to survey that, seeing, okay, it's fitting, why is it fitting? I began to survey my whole Bible and actually see that Jesus coming and dying fits in God's character and nature over the whole counsel of God's word. It's fitting with his holiness and his righteousness. Right? God is perfectly holy and righteous. He's other. He's, he's set apart. And His Son coming, right, and being that perfect sacrifice is consistent with what God requires for Himself. But it's not just with His holiness and righteousness. It's consistent with His character of power and wisdom. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. He says that in Christ, so in His coming, is the power And wisdom of God on display. That that's wrapped up in Christ. So here's what God is saying. In my plan of redemption, in Jesus coming, putting on flesh, and, and living among you, and dying, my power and my wisdom is going to be made known to each and every one of you. That if I chose another route or another way, that wisdom and that power wouldn't be displayed to you. Now, track with me. And this is where we get a little bit deeper. The original audience of the book of Hebrews were Jewish Christians, okay, this wouldn't have caused them as much angst as it caused me and maybe for some of you. They would have understood that the power and salvation and redemption of God was something that had to be displayed. This is all over their Old Testament, something they were very, very familiar with. And in fact, um, in Genesis, God's creative power, right? God creating uh, the birds of the air and the seas and the landscape and, and all those things. How, how are those things created? What is the power that goes forth? His word, right? It's his word that creates. It's his word that's the raw material. When the Bible, when the Old Testament talks about God's power of salvation or him redeeming or him saving, do you want to know what picture it uses? Almost every time, I think 27 times in the Old Testament. It's not his word. It's not his thought. It's his arm. It's his outstretched arm. Some of you are like, really? Yeah, look at this in Isaiah. This is just a few. I could have pulled up 27 of these things. Who has believed what he has heard from us about God's redemption? That's what he's talking about there. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is Isaiah 53 talking about the Messiah, but also talking to Israel that the arm of the Lord is the one who rescued them. Go to the next one. The Lord has bared his, I love this one. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. It's like a common phrase right now is, is about like, and it's, it's, a, it's a good phrase, about like God flexing, like God really showing up or flexing. That's what this kind of captures is that he bears his holy arm for all nations to see what? To see his strength in his redemption. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Did you see that? How him bearing his arm to all nations shows the nations what? That salvation belongs to God. Now, this next one is from Exodus 6. Now, this is talking about Moses and the people of God being delivered from Egypt. Look how the language is used here. Say, therefore, to the people, Moses, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Always, always, always. In your Bible, when you see the arm of God, it has to do with salvation. Literally, it talks about hanging, God hanging the stars. It says that He does that with His fingers. Right? It's like He just goes like this and throws them all up there. But when it comes to salvation and redeeming a people, here's what we know about our God: He shows up with His arm. See, Kyle, that's great. That's the Old Testament, Luke chapter one, the Christmas story, Mary the mother of Jesus. You you remember that Mary's song, the Magnificat, right? Look at it in verse 51. Look at at the leading line from Mary who has Jesus the Messiah. He has shown strength with his what? Arm. Arm. Read it, right? It's up there. Arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. That is Mary singing about the salvation within her that is Christ. And what is the lead line there? That God has shown his strength by revealing what? His arm. Now it is not by accident That the scriptures would say this Messiah, this one who was sovereignly placed to come and die for us, that his what would be stretched out on a cross? His arms. Listen, this is the way because it's the way that the power and love and grace and holiness and righteousness of our God is on full display. So it's fitting. It's right. It's perfect. Now it's not just fitting because of what it accomplishes. But verse 10 goes on to say it's fitting, because let's, let's read it. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's Genesis language, right? He's always been Jesus. In bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay? So we're talking about the cross there. We're talking about his life being marked with suffering. What did that bring about? That came about perfect through suffering. Now, the phrase right before that, he should make him the founder of their salvation. Some of your translations say pioneer, which is a really good word. Another word there, leader. Jesus is the one, the trailblazer, the pioneer, the leader of our salvation. There was a trail we could not go into. We could not enter apart from Jesus, King Jesus, Leader Jesus, Pioneer Jesus, taking us with him down that trail. And that is what Hebrews 2 is talking about, going, listen, through suffering, through the cross, he is now the leader that we needed. He is the pioneer. He's the founder of our salvation. So so Jesus' death was, was not just fitting because God said it's consistent with his nature, it was fitting also because it confirmed him as the leader and pioneer we desperately need. You see that? So it confirmed God's character, but it also confirmed that Jesus was exactly what we needed. So here, let me make a simple yet profound statement. Jesus leads us. Every bit of us. Our church. Our lives, every every facet, every fiber, Jesus leads us. That's what Hebrews 2 just announced. Why do we talk about Jesus more than anything else? Because he matters more than anything else. Apart from him, we have nothing. Apart from him, we have a trail ahead of us that we can't charter. But with Jesus, what we just saw from here in Hebrews 2 is like, no, listen, I'm the founder. I'm the leader. I'm the pioneer. We're going together. Where are we going, Jesus? Glad you asked. Hebrews 2. I know we're kind of going backwards here. Back behind founder of their salvations. What does it say? He's bringing many sons and daughters to what? So King Jesus, leader Jesus, pioneer Jesus, where is he taking his sons and daughters, those who trust him in faith? To glory. To glory, to the place we could never get on our own. He's going, listen, you're coming with me. I'm going to lead you to a place that you can't go on your own. So come on, let's go. And so when we think of Jesus leading us, here's the first thing that Hebrews wants us to see, that his life and his death were fitting, but then Jesus leads us to glory. He leads us to glory. What a comforting hope, right? He leads us to the place we could never go on ourselves. He leads us to that space and place that our hearts desperately long for more than anything else. And he says, come on bringing many sons and daughters to glory. I love that. We sing that song that comes from Hebrews. But he doesn't just lead us to glory. Look at this in the next verse. He leads us out of a place that many of you find yourselves in. And this is in verse 11. He says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's us as believers, all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them or you brothers. And I put this as a side note, and I don't know why I did this in my notes, but this is actually a major point in this sermon. That Jesus is not ashamed of you. That in leading us to glory, he's saying, these are my brothers, these are my sisters, this is my family, and where we're headed, I'm taking them with me, right? This pioneer, this trailblazer, Jesus, King Jesus. And he goes, listen, The enemy is going to try to indict you and condemn you and put a massive rock on you called shame. The world is going to be clamoring how guilty you are, condemning you, shouting at you. And here's what I want. I want you to understand the gospel in such a profound way that all of those voices grow strangely dim and the voice of Jesus Christ would be louder because he's shouting over you forgiveness and love and grace and mercy. And he's going, I am not ashamed of you. You say, Kyle, you don't know my past. You don't know how checkered it is. You don't know what's it. Nobody knows about those skeletons in my closet. Jesus is going, I'm not ashamed of you. I love you. My grace is sufficient for you. My mercy covers you. That shame, that guilt, that condemnation, that is not from Christ. That is from Satan. Listen, the, our enemy speaks one language, and it's lies. And some of you, you have fallen prey to those lies. Those lies. And what you need to hear this morning, maybe more than anything else, is Hebrews 2.11. I am not ashamed of you. It's not like Jesus is going, yeah, this is my family, this is my family. Oh, you did that? Like, no, these are my brothers. You're, you're. No, he's like, come on, we're together. I'm the leader. And you know why he can say that? Because it's not on your record or my record that we stand before God. It's not on your record or my record that we get to glory. It's on his record. So in Jesus denying you or being ashamed of you who trust in him would be like him denying himself. And let me tell you, God does not deny God. Jesus is not denying his record. He knows it quite well. And he's going, listen, I will stand with you in all of heaven and say, these are my brothers and sisters. This is my family. I'm not ashamed. not ashamed of them because my record covers them. I paid the price. I suffered. I died. I did exactly what was befitting to God the Father to satisfy his wrath. And so he, he leads us to glory. He leads us out of shame, right? I'm not ashamed of you. And the third thing is this, that he leads us, he leads us out of slavery. And this is verses 14 uh, through 16. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, um, but I, I want to look at it. Because the author here in Hebrews brings up something that plagues us all. And this is, some of you jumped to sin right there. Don't go there quite yet. This is death. What he talks about here in this text in verse 14 through 16 is death. And Jesus goes, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to conquer death by Death. That's what he says here in Hebrews chapter 2 uh, verses uh, 14 and 15. He says, "The same things that through the death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who fear who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. All of us have this impending thing that hangs over our lives known as death, right? It's, it's something that if you're honest, if we're honest when we talk about it, it causes um, angst and anxiety. But I love what Richard Phillips says about death, that death is not merely an event that awaits us, but it's a power that rules us. And here's what our Savior does is he steps into that and he goes, listen, death is real. Death is something that has happened to humanity because of sin. But I'm going to step into death and defeat death by death and thus free you from that slavery. So listen, you and me as Christ followers, we have this freedom and this freedom from slavery, the slavery that plagues us, known as death. Why? Because Jesus stepped into that place and says, I've defeated it. I've done away with death in my death. You see, we have the confidence we can escape death. But how and why did death enter? why did death come into this world? Now we can go where you went with the last point. Because of sin. And that's exactly how Hebrews ends this passage. Look, therefore, after making this massive claim that he has led us out of death, he's freed us from the slavery of death. He says, you want to know why and how? Here's how. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, back to the incarnation, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for their sins. There's a big theological word in there that you need to know, right? Some theological words, all right, but propitiation. Circle that one, highlight that one. The word propitiation means to appease. Appease. You see, death, what underlies death, is sin. The reason death and decay have entered and plagued this world is because sin entered this world. And now here's where I hope you sense a shift in Hebrews, and if you don't sense it, I will explain it, hopefully. That in these other verses, Jesus is going, listen, you're with me you're with me. You're my brother. You're my sister. You are with me. We're escaping death by my death. Now here is where Jesus goes. I have to go alone. I have to go alone to be the sacrifice for you to appease the wrath of God. Propitiation. Jesus gives us the eyes to see that we can't go with him to the cross. Because here's the reality. If we were able to go with him to the cross, here's what we'd start to do. Ephesians tells us, we'd begin to boast. we say, oh yeah, I suffered too. Oh yeah, I was, I was on the toe, but I, you know, I got a little bit of that. And what the gospel does is it wakes us up to go, oh no. Jesus has to go to a place I can't go, but that I deserve to go. Jesus has to go alone as the perfect sacrifice, the one lamb who was slain for my sin and for your sin. And you see, the original readers of this, these Jewish Christians, they would have read that word propitiation and something would have struck them differently than it strikes you and me. You want to know the word propitiation in the Greek is the exact, and this is in Greek, I want you to get this, is the same word mercy seat from your Old Testament. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know it was a system with the temple and with sacrifices. And in the temple, there was this center place called the Holy of Holies, and there was only one person who could enter into it, and that was the high priest. And he went in there once a year, and you know what he did over the mercy seat? Was he sprinkled blood, a sacrifice of goats and bulls, right? Because that's the place where God would come and meet with his people. And in the Holy of Holies also set two tablets. You know what those two tablets were? That was the law of God. And so if God shows up without a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, guess what? He comes down and he sees lawbreakers. He sees people who are in their sin, dead in their sin. And his righteousness and his wrath has to be poured out on them. Has to. And so that's why yearly a high priest would go in there. Because the presence of God would fall and he wouldn't see lawbreakers, but he'd see blood. He'd see a sacrifice. And so here's what Hebrews is telling us. Yeah, there's some light bulbs going off for some of you right now. Jesus is the great high priest. It says the faithful, the merciful, the gracious high priest who walks into that most holy place, the holy of holies. And it says that he is our propitiation. He is the new, the perfect mercy seat. And he says, listen, all of God's wrath, do them, is going to be poured out on me. And listen, that's a seat that only Jesus could fill. Only he could go in that place. And the way of salvation had to come through sacrifice and blood and Jesus coming and living (laughs) and dying. It was fitting. It was right. It's what we needed and what God required for his glory. And so, fittingly, we're gonna take communion this morning we're going to take the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And I hope for some of you that hearing Hebrews 2, maybe you've walked with Jesus for 50 or 60 years, that this has struck you differently in the profound depth of what Jesus did for you. That this was required for God to be appeased. That Jesus' propitiation was the wrath of God poured out upon him. And in turn, we don't get wrath, we get grace. We get glory. It's unreal, the exchange. And so would you stand with me? Um, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, before he went to stretch out his arms, the power of God stretched out on a cross. He took bread and with his disciples he broke it. He said, This bread represents my body, broken for you. And the word is still the same this morning. This represents the broken body of Jesus for you and me, broken so that we might be made whole. And Father, thank you. Thank you for your Son, God, who lived the life we could not live, died the death we deserved, but rose victoriously over death, hell, and the grave. Lord, announcing our victory, announcing his victory. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that every square inch of our lives, God, is important because you've redeemed every square inch of our lives. That there's not one mundane thing, there's not one ordinary thing. Lord God, I pray that you would help us this week to be transformed by the power of your gospel alive in our lives. That we would see that salvation has come through no other way and through no other means other than Jesus Christ coming, dying, and raising victoriously for your glory. So Father, I pray that that would capture us as a community of faith, that would capture us individually for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.